This isn't just about crisis mitigation right now. This is planning for the second and third wave. It is the week of April 6th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the same Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, uh, coronavirus. Uh, it's the only story in the world right now. It's in every headline, on every Chiron, on every network. Americans are rightly focused on their own physical and economic health. Until the virus is under control, that's unlikely to change. But there is a plague going on in the rest of the world, too. The, uh, the big $2 trillion stimulus bill that passed a couple of weeks ago included a mere $1 billion for international assistance. Those are programs at the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development that help other countries deal with the effects of the virus. A lot of these countries wouldn't be able to do anything without assistance from us or other places. That total, that $1 billion, is about 0.05% of the total amount of spending in the bill. That's a historically low figure by any standard. Generally speaking, in the U.S. budget, about 1% of so-called discretionary spending is devoted to international assistance or diplomacy programs. So this is about 1/20th of that normal amount. So that's, that's really not much at all. To cite one example of what the need is in the world, I am told that the entire country of Mali in the Sahel in North Africa has only five ventilators, and that's a country of about 40 million people. So, Jamil... Let's, uh, let's you and I have a little conversation here about uh, where our party should be on this issue. It seems that uh, we're looking down the barrel of a gun internationally here, and there's a catastrophe coming down the pike. We're not ready. We're not getting the rest of the world ready. There's going to be uh, massive problems in the developing world. What should we be doing right now about that? Well, look, Les, obviously it's a hugely important issue, um, and the Chinese are doing a ton out there. They are getting out there, um, sending supplies not just to the U.S., uh, but to all sorts of countries across the globe, including um, uh, our allies in Italy um, and, and uh, people we want to be our allies uh, throughout the developing world also. So the Chinese are clearly seeing this as a moment uh, to replace the U.S. in terms of global leadership. Uh, but at the same time, and while, so while the answer might be tempting to just say, well, we should send everyone the supplies they need and spend our money abroad. The reality is we have a very challenging situation here at home. Chinese have the benefit uh, of being a few uh, weeks and months ahead of us on this. Um, but, you know, depending on what you believe, whether they're having a resurgence or not, um, you know, they, they also have a, a, a manufacturing uh, sector that they can turn to their, uh, at their will, essentially, in a way that we really can't. Um, and the reality is that, look, you look to New York and they're still short thousands of ventilators. Uh, while some states are, are turning back some of their ventilators, it's in the hundreds, not the thousands. Um, and some states are donating ventilators to New York and N95 masks and the like. Um, you know, the situation remains dire at home. And as you heard from the president and the team yesterday, uh, this week will be a, uh, a 9-11 slash Pearl Harbor style week for New York City. Um, and so the challenge remains here at home. And until we're able to uh, really address the challenge here at home effectively, um, and that requires a lot more federal assistance than we're seeing to date. 
Um, I don't think it makes sense to be sending a ton of, uh, of supplies and capabilities overseas. At the moment, where we turn that curve and we're on the, on the downward swing and we believe we're in a much better place, I absolutely think there's an important role for foreign aid to play um, in cementing our role in the world. But it, that, just, that day just isn't today, Les. So, Jamil, you'll be surprised to learn I, to- I largely agree with you. The U.S. can't be in the position where it's helping others when its own population is desperately in need of assistance. And it's, this is all, uh, it's one big piece of pie. So we can't pretend that we're going to uh, give uh, some commodities here to someone over there when we need them here. Uh, so you're, you're entirely correct. The U.S. has to be strong for it to be able to help other countries. Nevertheless, uh, this, this amount of money in the, uh, the stimulus bill, the, the third round of stimulus now so far for the coronavirus, is historically low. And these things don't necessarily happen in sequence. We need to appropriate the money. We need to start obligating funds now so that we can be ready in a month or two when the country will be strong and getting ready to help others. And I believe you're also entirely correct. China's definitely stepping into the void. A lot of it is high profile nonsense. Uh, We've seen a lot of their uh, equipment that they've been sending around is defective and had to be returned. It also appears that the coronavirus situation in China is much worse than is being said officially by that government. They've closed movie theaters in big cities. Uh, There are it's evident that there are huge numbers of patients and dead people that were not counted in the numbers that are coming out of that country. So, uh, but China is kind of eating our lunch internationally and that's going to have real implications. They're sending 300 doctors and other medical officials to Italy. Italy's a NATO country. It's uh, part of the G7. This is, this is a big deal. They're making inroads in places where they should not be making inroads. Um, there was another, there's another amazing story that happened in the last couple of days, which was, um, and it appeared, uh, and Dana and Jody, I'm interested in your take on this and kind of your perspective on, on how you see this, where uh, officials from the coronavirus task force in the White House called up the government of Thailand to see if there was any personal protective equipment or PPE that Thailand could provide to the United States while we're in the throes of the crisis and they haven't quite reached it yet. And Thai officials said to them, actually, uh, you're sending some stuff to us right now. So it appears that the U.S. is occasionally engaged in sending stuff abroad that it really does need here. What what do you make of that? So, you know, on this story with Thailand, I, I don't think we should overreach uh, on this story. To me, it's actually having spent a lot of years in government. It's actually not so surprising. Government is a really big bureaucracy. And particularly at times of crisis, it actually works less well than it does when we're not in crisis. And you're talking about people within the administration at the White House and AAD and other places who aren't typically crossing one another on the Venn diagram, if you will. So people who wouldn't naturally be talking to each other on a day-to-day basis. And we would all like to think that that gets better during a crisis. I actually think it gets a, I think it gets a little bit worse. Um, I just want to say something, you know, about this overall issue. I mean, obviously, last Jamil, uh, you're right, we have to take care of people at home first, but I think we need to stop thinking about this as an April or May crisis and thinking about it as a long-term crisis, right, where we need the entire world, the entire globe to come together to get a handle on this crisis because it will affect us in the long run, uh, you know, both economically but also in terms of our long-term health, right? So our goal as a globe, as a world, has got to be to put this virus to bed as quickly as possible. And that may mean, in the long run, sending resources elsewhere in order to contain that virus so it doesn't come back and bite us in the tuchus in six months or a year. 
So I'm struck by how much of the conversation is about should the U.S. give material support or keep the material support here at home, ventilators, masks, et cetera. There's a much broader area where the United States can cooperate, which gets to the point Jody's making. This isn't just about crisis mitigation right now. This is planning for the second and third wave. So even if the United States domestically gets our response and our sick under control, and there's no broader assistance given in Africa, in the Western Hemisphere, in Asia, in the Middle East, that will continue to affect Americans. It will continue to affect the global economy. It will continue to impact where we can travel, how we travel, how we engage in trade and commerce, et cetera. It's not just about who's giving whom ventilators, who's sending whom doctors. That's short-term crisis response. Where the United States can play a role is not in sending doctors, but public health experts organizing on an international scale, which is frankly going to require cooperation with China, despite how distasteful and unpopular that notion might be at this point, to plan for what are we going to do about the second and third wave? What do we need to change in the way global commerce, interaction, et cetera, happens? Those are very serious questions. And right now we're in this tit for tat with the White House where one hand is calling Thailand asking for equipment and another part of the U.S. government bureaucracy is sending equipment. Now, some of that is the lack of planning and competence for a whole of government approach to this crisis because it's not just domestic and it's not just international. It's both. But there's a much broader issue here. And I don't see Congress directing that that planning and organization and funding start to take place. And frankly, it's not something that the United States can do itself. It should be working through international organizations and with countries that are starting to stem their own contagion of coronavirus in their countries. You know, let's let's talk about that international organizations concept for a second, because I think there's a I think as you as you state, there is an expectation among people that the World Health Organization is somehow the answer to a pandemic. Uh, and I'm thinking back to uh, in the last decade during the Obama administration, when the Ebola outbreak in West Africa occurred, not in the usual spot of Congo and Central Africa, but instead broke out in Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea. Everyone expected that the WHO would be able to handle this, that uh, it would be contained. There'd be a few hundred cases, which is kind of the norm for Ebola. Instead, it metastasized into this massive problem, thousands of people infected, thousands dead, maybe into the tens of thousands. Some Ebola uh, actually made it to the United States, a very small amount, thank God. Uh, But we had this expectation that the WHO as an international organization could handle it. And frankly, it can't. I mean, there's a bunch of uh, problems with the WHO. It's politically, it's a political organization. It has uh, 175 or 180 members, all of whom want to have some say in how it operates. It's not lean and mean. It's not ready to go. It's not the Marine Corps. You can't just expect it to go handle a problem and, and solve it. And then you've got the very crazy Chinese politics where the People's Republic of China is a member. Taiwan is not. Taiwan, of course, is getting coronavirus right now also. They're handling it without any assistance from the WHO, which is, which is crazy and morally wrong. So is our international organizations, as we have currently constructed them, really an answer? Or doesn't there have, really have to be, at the end of the day, a massive bilateral program, not, not unlike what happened with HIV AIDS when President Bush and uh, both parties in Congress agreed there should be uh, billions of dollars a year devoted to stopping this horrible situation 
and, and we ended up with the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, spent five or $6 billion a year, saved millions of people. It was, it, but it was a U.S.-led effort. We didn't rely on international organizations. Yes, we did create this new thing called the Global Fund, which is based in Geneva, which allowed for other people to put money in. But we didn't go through the U.N. We didn't go through the WHO. We didn't go through U.N. AIDS. We started our own thing because we, we knew that we had to solve the problem ourselves. Right. So I just want to pick up on, some, on this idea of what the U.S. did in response to, to the HIV AIDS crisis. Right. So President Bush took real initiative on this. But that that the global AIDS PEPFAR initiative was a 2003 initiative uh, following the discovery of AIDS in the United States in 1981. And I say that not not as a criticism, but just to kind of note that it took us a long time to get organized around this. And I think that really requires us to think about what what do we need now? You're pointing out, I think, really correctly that the WHA is probably not the answer. The question is, like, what is the answer? What is the coordinating mechanism that countries that are interested in demonstrating leadership on this can pull together on and have in place for the next time that we actually have a uh, have a crisis. So to me, like that response has to look like two things. One, a coordinating mechanism. And two, the thing that we've only sort of done, which is to seriously invest in global health infrastructure, right? Responses on health issues have got to be local responses to health issues. You want people around the globe, whether it's treating Ebola in West Africa or uh, the coronavirus in, in Wuhan, China, to have the ability and resources to be able to respond quickly and to be able to diagnose and share that information accurately with the rest of the globe. So that, that's a place where I think we need to really think about where the United States can bring its leadership uh, to these issues and to create a fund maybe like the Global Fund, but that has to do with pandemic response or emergency response, because you're not, you don't know which things are going to come up next. You can't identify exactly what resources are going to be needed to plan for it, but you could have that mechanism in place, and you could be investing in global health infrastructure in order to provide uh, the needed support in local communities. Jamil. No, I think Jody is exactly right. In fact, the point that she made about PEPFAR and the timing versus when we found when we discovered HIV in the U.S. was exactly the point I was going to make. And, and she's exactly right that the, the challenge is, is, you know, we're very new in this environment. Admittedly, you know, we had SARS and MERS a, a while back um, and we've seen Ebola in various places in Marburg and the like. Uh, but this is the first real wide scale significant impact pandemic. Um, since since uh, the onset of the Spanish flu in 1918, and so uh, you know we're we're new to this, and and we shouldn't assume that we're going to either either commit a huge amount of resources or be able to commit a huge amount of resources until we've controlled it here at home. And I think Jody's point is right about capability building and 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 local response. But of course, the same thing that Jody just said about what we need to do overseas with respect to all these other nations is just as true here in the United States with every state. And so until we can get our own states to be handle, able to handle these things locally and spend that money here and figure out how to do that here. We're never going to be able to effectively implement it overseas or help them implement it overseas. And again, I'm not saying it's, it's an, it's an, it's an, you know, one or the other, but it is certainly a sequencing thing. And, and at least as it comes to HIV in the U S we spent a lot of time getting that, that disease under control in New York city, San Francisco, LA decades and decades before we talked about Africa and PEPFAR. So right. that sounds like answer. a, that sounds like an endorsement, Jamil, of high-quality health care for every American. Jody, I believe in high-quality health care for American. I just think the federal government's the best place to do it. Look at all the <laughs> other programs we run and how nightmarish they are. If that's what you 
if you like the way that we run our welfare system or the way that we run Medicaid, if you think that's a good, a good example of how we should run things, well then, Hey, let's do national. Right, let's, but, or, let's... or by the way, or by the way, if you like how Canadians wait in lines to get to doctors for, for years on end, my grandfather right. passed away waiting for the Canadian healthcare system to deliver on it, deliver for him. So, you know, Hey, it's all good. I get what let's, you right. let's, let's get, let's get back to the international response. And let me make one point on timing. Uh, the HIV AIDS crisis, while horrible, was a much slower burn than the coronavirus. Uh, it took years for the, for, the, uh, for the disease to make itself into Africa in a way where a massive U.S. response was appropriate and necessary. I'm not saying we couldn't have done it a little bit earlier. I'm sure we could have. But it took years, even a decade, to get there. We don't have anywhere near that kind of time with coronavirus. This thing is its going to be... It's, uh, it's in every county in America or darn close to it already. It's going to be in every country in the world within the next few days. There's going to be a huge crisis in the developing world, not in a year, not in months, in weeks, if not shorter, right? So we, we need to be acting now. We had a huge appropriation of money, $2 trillion. We, missed, we really missed the boat on doing an international program there. There might be another round of funding. Pelosi and Trump are already arguing about what's going to be in there. Uh, so it's, it's a little more, uh, it's a little less likely that something could happen there. It should, I hope it does, but we're, you know, we missed a big opportunity last week when we only spent a billion dollars. We could have appropriated more. It doesn't mean we had to start shipping ventilators to other countries when we needed them here, but we could have at least been ready when the crisis hit in those other places. All right, let's, uh, let's turn to China and talk a little bit more about what's going on uh, in terms of supply chain and kind of the, the impact that this crisis is going to have on trade and, the, and the, the world economy. Right now, we're st- even with all of the anti-China rhetoric, and I'm not saying it's wrong, coming from the administration, we, we, the United States, are still reliant on China for a lot of the personal protective equipment, the PPE, that, that we need to address the crisis here. So we're still relying on China as our cheap manufacturer of goods, which means President Trump is out there saying, I think, somewhat rationally, uh, nice things about uh, Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, because if he says bad things and they cut us off from PE, PPE, that would be a crisis. Meanwhile, there's a U.S. company, a big Minnesota company, Jody, that you may want to comment on, 3M, uh, an amazing historic U.S. company that's done uh, terrific work for years and years and years, a real pillar of our economy, that has contractual obligations to sell certain kinds of equipment to other countries that the president has specifically criticized and called out their executives in public at his press conferences. So we have this crazy situation where the president is criticizing an American company in Minnesota, a swing state, some might argue in the coming election, and but at the same time being nice to the dictator in Beijing. What's going on here? So, yeah, I think that was really... Uh a shock to a lot of people to see the president um, talking about companies like 3M and and General Motors uh, in this fashion. And I think most people, if you look, uh, if you stand back and take a look at um, what these companies are doing, I think both of them are doing their due diligence to try to produce for the U.S. domestic audience as much possible equipment as they can. Uh, And 3M itself, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, what does it mean if the U.S., um, is unable, American companies are unable uh, to provide support to country, to other countries as they seek to manage this crisis. So as of today, 
I think we have 1.3 million coronavirus cases, 300,000 of those are in the United States. That means a million, there's a million cases outside of the US. And I think 3M has appropriately pointed to that fact and said, listen, it's not as if we can just walk away and pretend that if we take care of this at home, that we're still not going to have a problem at home in six months uh, in six months or a year. So hey, listen, we all need to just be pulling together. I think it sounds good to suggest that we would uh, separate all of our medical production from China, but it's probably not realistic. Today, we're in desperate need of respiratory but in a different crisis, we might, we might need kidney dialysis machines or other types of medical equipment. So I, I think the issue here has to be looking at the national stockpile. How do we ensure that we have in there enough of basic medical equipment that we might need? And how do we fund it so that that equipment is in the condition that it should be in when we need to use it? So I, I think there might be a fault line here. Uh, Jamil, what, what's your reaction to the idea that we don't need to totally separate our economy from China's on these, uh, these items that are now strategically important? Because, you know, we're going to have coronavirus this year and probably next year and the year after. So should we, should we be looking long term to pull our supply chain totally apart from China or should we come to some sort of middling arrangement? What do you think? Well, look, I think it's really hard to completely decouple from China. I mean, I think, I think that Jody's right that it's unrealistic to expect complete decoupling, whether it's, whether it's in the area of, um, of medical supplies or, um, or other critical equipment. I mean, we've been talking about this for years when it comes to uh, computer chips, when it comes to telecom equipment, uh, when it comes to uh, rare earth metals, which they have cornered the market on. Um, you know, we have a real reliance on China. And so there are a lot of areas where we need to separate from China and decouple as much as possible that are strategically and, and nationally important. And we've known about for decades. Um, and we need, and, and we've actually moved in the contrary direction. We've actually gotten more and more reliant upon China. Um, and we sort of had this belief that maybe this interconnectedness of our, of our economies um, will, will one, create political change there, which will make them more amenable to sort of Western style approaches. That, that has been a complete failure. You just need to look at the situation of the Uyghurs to understand that. Um, but it's also failed to really uh, play out in the economic arena either, because while we uh, can use our economic leverage with them at some, at some level, uh, they have much more economic leverage over us, and they're increasingly diversifying their markets overseas and making other countries reliant upon them. And so um, I do think that for critical national needs, we need domestic capability. We need to find a way to support that and fund that. Some of that is medical equipment. Some of that is is uh, rare earth metals. Some of that is, is, is silicon chips um, and the like. Um, and some of it is military equipment and steel and the like. Now, all that being said, uh, I do think that uh, Jody's right. The national stockpile is, is one way to go about that. But look, the national stockpile is what it is, which is it is a emergency reserve. It will never be enough, not in oil, not in medical equipment, to be the savior of when we have a, when we have a situation. It merely is a, a, a step, uh, a temporary stopgap measure to help us while we while we get to other equipment and so we've got to find a way and it doesn't have to just be decoupled from china or make it at home it can be rely on other allies right um but they then can't have their supply chains relied on china either and that's where this challenge comes into play and the reality is that if we're going to do that we have to be willing to accept higher costs because let's just call it what it is american manufacturing is a lot more expensive than chinese manufacturing is it just strikes me that if we're talking about working with like-minded partners and allies to insulate our own supply chain, 
I'm not sure what lesson allies and partners are taking about U.S. reliability at this point that would encourage them to take that leap of faith and work with us in cooperation to do such a thing, even if it was possible from an implementation standpoint. So just as Jamil is talking about the domestic structural barriers to protecting or bringing a bunch of uh, our supply chain domestically into the United States, China's flooding the zone right now with equipment. So I, I, I wonder, and, and it's not altruistic. So, so if we're talking about long-term security interests or that our national security is derived from things like protecting the supply chain or rare earth metals or technology, et cetera, nothing about U.S. actions at this point in time is ripening the environment to take those steps at some point if there was the political appetite to do so. Are we looking at a situation where we need to have a national industrial policy where the United States government is going to identify certain sectors, certain areas, certain products that we need to develop domestically and then somehow incentivize or direct private industry to manufacture those? Because right now, you know, GM, why would they make ventilators unless uh, Washington told them to that they had to do it? So we're either looking at uh, you know, a total trade, uh, you know, prohibition on China and, and building, you know, effectively a trade wall with China, which seems utterly impractical, or we're going to have to incentivize our own folks through some sort of uh, proactive federal government industrial policy that'll uh, compel these things to be produced. Is that, is that even workable? How much would that cost? And herein lies another striking irony to me of the moment we're in, which is less like to refer to a fault line that existed in the past as a member of the Republican Party to suggest a federal or congressionally mandated industrial policy where the federal government directs how the private sector should act is shocking to me that that conversation is happening in your party and in a Republican administration with Republican members of Congress actively talking about using the Defense Production Act or what the federal government should or should not be doing or the widespread bipartisan support for these huge federal stimulus packages. It it is just it, it is so interesting to me that a party that used to be the party of the free market has now shifted so much to even entertaining these kinds of discussions. Well, I don't know about Jamil. I must be a Nixon Republican. You know, we had wage and price controls back then. Uh, it was big government. It was bigger government even than uh, the two President Bushes, imagine. I keep thinking about, and all of the listeners are going to know, which president said the most terrifying words an American can hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And that is the moment we're in. Everybody is looking to the federal government and criticizing the federal government for its lack of organization, its lack of response. It's a lack of willingness to direct the private sector to do certain things. It, it is just striking that the fault line that existed before has so wildly swung. Some of it is about the Trump administration. Some of it is about the politics of this moment. And some of it is about the unprecedented nature of the threat that's facing us, both domestically, internationally, about our economic health and our physical health. It, it's just so striking. Yeah, and I think on top of uh, on top of that, even even as concerning, of course, is that the Chinese and the Russians, of course, have picked up uh, 
on this issue that we're struggling with, that we don't have uh, a national industrial policy or a way for the federal government, generally speaking, to compel companies outside of, you know, the emergency measures we've taken now uh, to, to go ahead and produce ventilators or, or, or rare earth minerals or whatever it might be. And they are actually picking this up and messaging it everywhere about this being a failure of U.S. democracy. So, you know, RT is out there spreading massive amounts of disinformation. They hosted a show last night called The Death of the U.S. Constitution, right, where they talked about how the U.S. government is going to collapse as a result of the coronavirus because it can't provide, the United States can no longer provide. I, I, thought, it, uh, I thought it was the U.S. Democratic Party that was saying the Constitution <laughs> had died. Am I mistaken? Uh, you are mistaken, right? So, like, they picked up on this as, a, as part of their own disinformation. And ironically, of course, while also massively underreporting uh, the, the movement of corona uh, in Russia and, and disease statistics in that country. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I agree completely with what with, with Jody and Dana are saying. I think that the, uh, the challenge here is that this isn't really, I mean, I think that Dana's right. This is a unique moment in, in American history. And by the way, Republicans have always taken the view that when it comes to national security crises or the like, that the federal government does have an important role to play. Um, and it's not that the federal government has nothing, has no role to play or there isn't a need for national policy. It's when these things reach the level of a national security crisis, which includes at times a healthcare crisis or an economic crisis. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with suggesting that there's an important role for the federal government to play here or going forward. Um, I just think that it is, it is not accurate to say uh, that, you know, uh, Republicans have always been opposed to these things. I agree big government is a problem. I don't think big government is a solution to these problems, but I do think that when it comes to a crisis, you need consolidated action, consolidated buying power. And that's why the decisions that have been made thus far in this crisis have not been the right thing for a Republican or a Democratic point of view, right? This is the rare scenario where the federal government is needed and it needs to act, it needs to act in a consolidated way, it needs to be buying ventilators at scale and distributing them to states that need them and then redirecting them when, the, when those crises end. And, you know, I, I mean, I never thought, I never thought I would say it, but good Lord, Andrew Cuomo's right. <laughs> At least you didn't have to say Mario Cuomo was right. Um, all right, Chris, let's, who's, uh, who's, who's a little more challenged. Yeah, well, and hopefully uh, he recovers quickly. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the Middle East before we uh, leave this discussion of um, coronavirus around the globe. Uh, and, and I'm particularly fascinated by two aspects of this. One, Iraq itself. Uh, Iraq is in chaos politically. There's no uh, real government in that country right now. Uh, the price of oil has plunged to historic lows. That's terrible for their government. Um, the, the Kurds in the north uh, seem to be particularly hard hit uh, economically. The rest of the country is hard hit by uh, social unrest, political unrest, and uh, virus. Uh, the coronavirus, of course, is running rampant there, and the government is unable to even tell people to stay home. So, uh, Dana, Jody, I'm interested in your uh, take on Iraq, and then also on uh, the the kind of concurrent issue of U.S. sanctions on Iran. Uh, the Trump administration, of course, is pursuing the, its maximum pressure campaign. A lot of people are saying that because the impact of the virus is so terrible that we should uh, provide sanctions relief so that the Iranian economy can recover and do something about uh, saving its own people from this. Uh, interestingly, it's the same people 
who are always against sanctions on Iran, who are saying we should give them sanctions relief. Either one of you want to opine on these, uh, these two issues. Dana. So I'll take the Iraq question. I'll toss Iran um, and the issue of effective sanctions implementation over to Jody. So on Iraq, first of all, to just broaden the aperture of what we're talking about, this is a country that only a few years ago was close to being overridden by ISIS. And we, having had massive numbers of troops there up until 2012 under the Obama administration had withdrawn those troops had sent thousands of troops back into Iraq to partner with Iraqi security forces all over the country to train them to fight ISIS. Many of those communities are in northern and western Iraq. They are not; they were not receiving government resources before. They have not rebuilt. They do not have effective service systems for education, for health, for water, for sanitation, for trash, trash collection. All of the trappings of what a functioning state would look like largely don't exist in large swaths of Iraq. Then you get to government formation, the most recent round of Iraqi elections and the dithering of politicians in Baghdad who have been unable to agree on a cabinet in order to move forward and govern the country. And in the midst of all this, Iraq is essentially hit with two existential crises. One is, of course, uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus. And the other one is the huge drop in oil prices resulting from the Russia-Saudi OPEC feud. So many other countries in the region have been able to attempt to keep pace with Saudi Arabia and ramping up production. Iraq simply doesn't have the capacity to do that um, because of the fragile nature of the state is is one main reason. So on top of all of this, uh, Corona threatens to take to to really um, make large swaths of this population ill. And a lot of the actions that we can take in countries like the United States self-quarantining are not possible um, in Iraq. People don't buy food for multiple days at a time. They also don't rely on the Ministry of Health. Um, they also don't self-quarantine at home. If, you're, if you are tested positive for corona in Iraq, you're taken somewhere else uh, for your quarantine. All of these things suggest that the spread of the virus in Iraq is going to get much, much worse. And the capacity of the state to respond to both treat its patients, prevent and plan for the next wave of coronavirus is largely non-existent. But even if it were to exist, what it is going to take is money. And the Iraqis and the Iraqi government do not have money and they do not have a functioning government. And on top of all of that, we are still um, locked in a U.S. versus Iran proxy battle for positive influence uh, over the trajectory of events in Baghdad. So you still have Iran attempting to take this very heavy hand in shaping developments there. You still have a bunch of Iraqi militia groups that continue to fire on the U.S. embassy and U.S. bases. And meanwhile, the fight against ISIS is not over. The U.S. can't go out and partner with Iraqi security forces and train them because of because of corona, which means that continuing the fight against ISIS isn't happening. So what happens in terms of the future of Iranian influence in Iraq, whether or not the Iranians will continue to try to attack the U.S. and and our interests in Iraq, what will happen with Iraq, which is bordered on all sides other than Iran by partners of the United States, 
Um, will Iraq even be able to survive economically? The Iraqi Kurdistan region may be the first to actually collapse as a result of uh, dwindling oil prices. So uh, it's a pretty troubling situation. And I would argue that one of the flaws of the administration's current approach is to see Iraq as a subset of the Iran maximum pressure policy rather than in the U.S. interest to support Iraq in and of itself. And here I toss it over to Jody to talk about Iran policy. All right. So to start with, uh, we have Iran was one of the first countries uh, to have a statistical amount of of coronavirus cases. They're now up to 60,000 cases in a country with a with a debilitated medical sector. Uh, It is certainly true that part of the reason that their medical sector is in the situation it is, is because they prioritize funding for things like their nuclear program over funding domestic priorities over, over many, many years. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's fair less to characterize uh, the voices that are calling for sanctions relief to be exclusively those who were calling for lifting of sanctions in the first place, right? It is partially true, but, I, you know, late last week, you saw a statement by Senator Menendez, uh, who's the ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Elliot Engel on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. They put out a fairly unusual joint statement. It's not something that they do very frequently. And while that statement doesn't exactly call for sanctions relief, it does criticize the administration's uh, willingness to work with partners who are interested in providing what is completely legal humanitarian assistance uh, to the government of Iran, to the state of Iran. So, you know, that statement says something like the administration's rhetoric has been chilling to those who want to participate in humanitarian relief efforts in Iran. So the question is, why, why is that, right? Is it actually legal to provide this type of assistance to Iran? It's not. So, you know, it sounds good to, re- to remove sanctions, but it's not really the issue. The underlying issue with Iran isn't sanctions. It's a problem in our system that prohibits us from engaging in transactions with Iran. So there were only a small number of Iranian banks who are not on the specially designated nationals list, the SDN list. So only a handful of banks in Iran with whom American banks and other banks can do transactions with. And then there were only a handful of institutions in the United States, for example, or even internationally who are willing to bank with Iran, right? And they're not willing to bank with Iran because of the risk of of fines, right? So the thing that has to happen here that had begun to happen at the end of the Obama administration before there was actually a nuclear deal in place is that the Treasury Department under Obama had made a real effort to provide a real humanitarian corridor uh, for the facilitation of humanitarian goods, food, medical supplies uh, to Iran. And what that means is lowering the risk for banks, doing things like providing letters of assurances to banks that if they are operating in good faith in making these transactions, that they they won't be fined if they make a mistake. So taking a new look at that effort and really putting administration support uh, behind that effort is something that needs to happen if we actually want to step up and, and address this, this, what is we've all agreed is a global issue. Jamil? Good idea. Give banks some cover for uh, sending humanitarian aid into Iran? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, it is a mistake uh, to uh, relieve the pressure on Iran at this point. I do think there is a role, a really important role for the American government to play in providing assistance, both in the form of information, a free press, communications capabilities. 
and humanitarian aid to the Iranian people directly. What I don't believe is that we ought to effectuate that through, uh, through banks and the like. Uh, I think that that is going to weaken our sanctions regime. Uh, I think that the U.S. government should be providing that, those capabilities directly to the Iranians, as we have um, historically in other places around the world where we've had, uh, had a lack of a relationship. Um, but I think we've failed on our, on our forward-leaning aspect of our Iran policy. We've had a great, aggressive, uh, anti-Iran, uh, anti-Iranian regime policy. I think we've, we've been a failure when it comes to really uh, attracting the attention um, and winning the hearts and minds of the Iranian people. Um, and this plays into that. Uh, and I don't think the solution is uh, create a humanitarian corridor with the banks and give them uh, the ability to, uh, to uh, fund humanitarian. If they make a mistake and happen to send airline parts or, you know, or, or subsidize oil or the like, or there might be a, you know, you might need oil for humani- for generators for humanitarian purposes or whatever. I mean, it gets redirected by the Iranian regime as has happened over and over again um, in other places around the world. Um, I don't think we want to see that. I think what we want to do is retain the maximum pressure campaign. In fact, double down on it as the administration correctly has. Um, but I do think there is a role for what I would call sort of the blue jeans, rock music and, and medical supplies part of American foreign policy we just have never really done that well when it comes to Iran. And that's a failure of our Iran policy. It's been a failure across the Obama administration, across the, the George W. Bush administration, and across the Trump administration. So let, let me be clear here, Jamil. We're not talking about a change in U.S. policy to provide some type of economic benefit to the government of Iran. We're talking about a change in policy that assures that organizations that want to provide humanitarian relief and medical supplies, as they are allowed to do presently, are actually able to use banks to conduct those transactions and actually be able to get that assistance to people who are in the midst of a medical crisis. We're not talking about a change in policy or any benefit to the government of Iran. We're talking about actually being able to carry out the things that we've said that we can do. Okay. Uh, great conversation. Uh, we, could, we could spend an hour talking about uh, Iran policy, as I know we all really want to do each time anyway. Uh, all right, let's go to our final segment. And instead of us talking about a story, a uh, foreign policy story that we might be following that's not in the headlines, let's talk about uh, how the coronavirus is affecting our own personal lives. I'll go first. This is Dana. So I want to share two things. The first one um, is I think that all of the Zoom meetings and video teleconferencing and ways of interacting without people being in the office presents some new opportunities down the road at some point for flexibility in the workplace for working parents. So for myself, I have two little kids, a spouse who has a full-time job, myself who has a full-time job, and we're having to figure out how to care for a little baby who can do nothing for himself, uh, cannot be left alone for 30 seconds, um, and a toddler and do our own jobs, which means that it's much more than an eight-hour workday or much more than a 10-hour workday. Um, and, and that's tough, but I also am learning some lessons about the fact that there, is, there are ways of doing remote work. And number two, I, would, I just want to say, you know, living in a neighborhood right now, it's been very interesting to see how the community has attempted to support each other, and especially all these kids at home, um, while social distancing and while being very safe. So my neighborhood has set up these elaborate scavenger hunts for kids. Right now there's a teddy bear hunt going on where everyone has put teddy bears in their window. 
There was one with Shamrock for St. Patrick's Day. And it is just a reminder that even in the absence of federal leadership, communities do come together. All right, Jamil, you're laughing the hardest. Go ahead. Well, I, I, loved, I loved the line about in the absence of federal leadership, but it just goes to show that local communities and states can do this job on their own. They don't need an overweening federal government to dominate their lives. So I agree totally with you, Dana. It's, uh, it's exactly right. We'll bring you over to the dark side uh, eventually. Um, you know, in my home, uh, the thing that I've found most interesting, it relates back to uh, a trip that uh, my wife and I took about a year and a half ago. We were in Israel uh, for about a week, and, um, and I've been to Israel a number of times with the government, uh, but this is the first time I've had time to sort of spend time um, you know, sort of thinking about the issues there that are outside of work. And uh, one of the things we did was we spent a weekend uh, with a rabbi who, had, who, had taken, who, had, who was hosting the trip, um, who was Orthodox. And so we spent uh, the, the Shabbat, you know, not using equipment and, and, and sort of, you know, not, 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 take, take, not taking transportation and sort of walking everywhere. And in a lot of ways, we, when we got back from that trip, which was a very moving trip for a variety of other reasons, um, we and we're, we're to be clear, we're a Shia Muslim family here at home. Um, when we um, when we got back, we said we need to implement some aspect of the Sabbath at, at home, and because it was it was really uh, enlightening from a family perspective. What happens when you don't use modern conveniences and we have to walk everywhere? You spend a lot more time talking to family and talking about the issues of the day. And so with coronavirus, that's actually we've sort of been even though we haven't we hadn't implemented it when we had planned on it, we talked about doing it. Um, it's sort of forced upon us in some ways because you're taking long walks with the family, you're spending time with the kids and you're talking about life and you're not, you know, doing things. And so for us, that's been a really eye-opening thing. The one other thing that we've done really interesting um, is that we've been praying together as a family with my family across uh, the country. And in fact, in, in foreign countries also, including Canada um, and, and, and parts of Africa, uh, we've been getting together at a, a certain time every evening on Zoom. And, and all praying together, which is, and, you know, and, you know, when we get to their family reunion, family events, we do that, but, you know, it's not typical for us to do that. Um, and so it's really been an interesting way of sort of continue to practice uh, both our own faith, but also, but also get the family closer together in, you know, what is, what is a time of uh, a time of challenges. Well, and for uh, those of you who are listening to this podcast, you should also know that because of Corona, Jamil is now bald but has a full beard and he, and he really does look terrific. I have to say. So there's a lot of pluses for, for Jamil. Jody. Right. So I'm reflecting this very morning on the fact that uh, I was supposed to be hiking the Grand Canyon uh, today. So we had planned, uh, had planned uh, for a very long time to take this, uh, this family trip. We were going to spend a couple of days in Las Vegas, uh, but really the crowning star of this, spring break vacation for us was to be this hiking and camping trip uh, in the Grand Canyon. Uh, so that's where I was supposed to be this morning. Instead, instead I'm here with you, um, but I'm also waiting to hear whether or not uh, my travel insurance is actually going to pay us back for both the airfare and the cost of, for the cost of this tour. It was a really significant investment that we made on behalf of our family to do this trip. And so I, I'm waiting to hear whether or not they're in fact going to pay us back for the costs that we incurred. Uh, even though we did purchase travel insurance, it's not entirely clear whether or not these circumstances uh, will, will provide us with the coverage that, uh, that we were hoping for. Uh, secondly, I would say uh, it's interesting, you know, we're at our house, we've got uh, three kids and my mother-in-law plus two dogs. Um, I think my husband and I are both working at home full time. And I think at the end of eight or nine hours of Zoom calls, he and I are socially exhausted. The kids, on the other hand, are not, right? I think they're actually having a much harder time with social isolation 
than parents are. Parents who are working are literally sitting on Zoom calls, seeing people uh, all day long and spending lots of time uh, chatting both in personal and professional conversations. I think it's a little bit different for, um, for children. My kids are middle school and high school ages. Um, if they're connecting with their teachers in a classroom, that's one thing. That's still not social contact. In the way um, in the way that we're doing uh, as adults, and so I really am beginning to feel that strain uh, for them this week um, that they're a little bit tired of their only interactions being uh, with the adults uh, in their life. And then lastly, I would say I am a baker. I love to bake. Um, so this had been a great opportunity for me to try out lots of new recipes, including this weekend for my son's birthday, I made a Minecraft cake. I'll send you a photo of it all uh, later, but it involved both cake and Rice Krispies and Jell-O all in one cake. I have to say, Jody, I saw that on Facebook or something and it looked amazing. It great tastes job. awful, looked amazing. <laughs> Uh, all right. So for me, uh, I think the biggest downside to this thing, uh, which, and, you know, we're thankful that this is really the biggest one is, uh, my senior, uh, my child who's a senior in high school is going to miss her, uh, prom and her graduation and all of the wonderful events that they have at the end of high school. And it's a real shame because it's hard to go back and recreate any of those. I think, uh, I give a lot of kudos to the, um, to the management and the teachers at uh, Fairfax County Public Schools because they've really tried to do a lot to help the kids, particularly the seniors. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's hard not to be a little sad. On the plus side, uh, evidently the NBA is considering, in lieu of games, going to a horse tournament where you just take a shot. And I have this amazing thirty foot uh, backwards over my head shot, two handed shot that goes in a lot more often than it should. So this is like my chance to be a professional basketball player. Um, okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here on the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find us. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Sydney Jolliffe for research assistance, and of course, the great Grant Haver for being our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.